You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Danny Kerry. Danny is an English international field hockey coach. He became the head coach of the Great Britain women's national team in 2003, eventually leading them to a bronze medal at the 2012 Olympics, a 2015 Euro Hockey Championship and a gold medal at the 2016 Rio Olympics. In 2016, he was awarded the FIH Coach of the Year and in 2017 received an MBE from the Queen for his services to sport. In 2018, he was appointed as the head coach of the men's side and led them to their first ever FIH Hockey Pro League Grand Final in 2019. Danny is a coach whose success has been built on his ability to self-reflect, learn and evolve. His story contains several pronounced infliction points and in this interview he discusses both in detail. His style is intense and couples both the science of physical and mental development with a player-first philosophy that places the individual and their unique needs ahead of team development. He is also innovative and not afraid to try and fail to find a way to step change performance. Some of the many highlights in this interview include 
how he focuses on density of decision-making in training to help the team regulate their emotional response in games. The process his athletes go through to raise their self-awareness and discover their own sense of purpose. And how helping the athletes deal with self-doubt or their own inner critic is an underreported aspect of the role of the head coach. This was a deep and insightful conversation, and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And now, please enjoy our interview with Danny Kerry. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Danny Kerry, good evening and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for inviting me. We're very excited to talk to you because you're just back from the sunny climes of Malaysia and you're getting ready for what we hope will be the Olympics in Tokyo. But also, I'm excited to talk to you, Danny, because you've had time, you've spent time with some amazing coaches. So I really want to get into that with you today in this interview. Yeah, I have to say I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm sure you'll be gentle with me. (laughs) I'll definitely be gentle with you. But let's start with a really easy question, if I could. Just where are you in the world and what have you been doing today? I live just about 11 or 12 miles east of Oxford. And then early this morning, I had to drive to Bisham Abbey, which is about half an hour south from here, which is the National Training Centre. And I had to do a PCR test. So at 8 a.m. this morning, I was having my uh, back of my throat and my nostrils interrogated for about the 50th billionth time this year. And then I had to drive straight back home and jump onto a series of Teams meetings via online. And uh, after this interview, I've got to pack my bag because tomorrow we're off to the sort of national stadium in London, Lee Valley, which is part of the London 2012 legacy, in readiness to play Germany on Wednesday and Thursday in the Pro League. Given that's been your day, we are equally thankful that you've managed to carve out a little bit of time for us. So we promise to try our best to make it an interesting interview. Danny, could I just start actually by referencing some of the great coaches you've had the chance to work with. There's Dave Vinson, there's Barry Dancer, who I know had a profound influence on you, and there's also Eddie Jones. So maybe just a simple question if we could just start. What do you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? I don't think there's one thing. There might be a common thread. My sense is that the ones that I've met anyway, I feel they have the real courage of their own convictions and they hold their position strongly but also possibly with an element of curiosity for other views. So that ability to hold hold true to what they believe while still having an element of curiosity about how might I do this better, I think is sort of a common theme in the coaches I have looked up to and, and have worked with. And as part of that, I think they play to their strengths. What you see is what you get. I don't think there's any great bravado about the really top coaches. They are congruent with themselves and... I think over time, that's something you can maintain. You're not trying to be somebody you're not. Danny, you've got a Bachelor's of Science, I believe, and a Master's in Culture and Society. And so I wanted to ask you, knowing what you know now, having been to the Olympics, secured that gold medal, worked with these great coaches, what do you wish they would have taught you back at university? That's a really good question. And I am very nervous because obviously I was at university sort of 25, 30 plus years ago now. So when I was at university, it may all have changed. It was really just about sort of accumulation of knowledge, which you then had to regurgitate sort of examination time. It wasn't, in my experience, sort of the application of experiential 
learning. It was really just accumulation of knowledge and ability to write it down in an exam at the end of it. I'm sure there are university courses now that possibly work in this way, but if it were more about the application of experiential knowledge and what you learn about yourself in the process of doing that, that I think would have been a really good university experience in terms of being able to fulfill your roles in life better. Of course, experiential knowledge is at the centre of your coaching philosophy, but if it's okay with you, I'd still like to go on a little bit of a journey and build up to that. If I could, I'd like to ask you about your approach as a coach because you're very focused on it being an athlete-centred approach and purpose being at the very centre of that. And so I wanted to ask you, can you share with us how you would uncover and work with an athlete's sense of purpose? Yes, I think in the role I work in, so I work in a team sport and, and currently we have 26 sort of full-time athletes. So it's sort of how do you do that collectively across 26 athletes, but also on a one-to-one basis as well. A lot of what I'm going to talk about, I need to give due credit to Katie Warriner, who's the psychologist that leads this process in our in our program, and also Tim Pitt, who's also the other psychologist that also works with this process. We call it the Y discovery process. Many people are familiar with the Simon Sinek sort of start with why, famous TED Talk philosophical approach. And essentially, there's a real guided process led by the psychologists. And I'm privy and very fortunate to be involved in this, both doing it myself and also listening to the other athletes' stories in this process. But there's a real guided process around the athletes exploring their life histories, reflecting on what have been the really most satisfying and enjoyable aspects of their lives, what are the things they look fondly back on, equally the things that they found challenging in their lives. And in doing that, trying to understand what they bring from the past to the present and why they act and behave the way they do. And we start to sort of an unearth and a self-insight in our athletes and connect them perhaps with the things that they love about what they do to allow them to have a greater sense of perspective about what they do and why they do it. And at its core, then understanding why do you do what you do and what would you want to have as sitting behind the purpose for what you want to do. That process goes on in a, in a really, over a number of sort of extended interviews, conversations, kind of conversations is a better word. And that gets sort of boiled down and assimilated. And once the athlete feels very happy and content they've really got to a place where they feel they understand their why they are then sort of guided to present that to all of us so that all of the other athletes and all of those staff so it becomes a sort of a greater level of mutual understanding between the athletes and the staff and that creates a greater level of mutual support between because we tend to know where people have come from what they enjoy about their life that what they're seeking from what they do and what they want from others in that process and what they need from others in that process And that's how we go about it in the current Great Britain men's hockey program. I think it's only fair that I reference Katie Warren and Tim Pitt and who really lead and do an excellent job in that process. And the athletes who've engaged with what on the surface can be quite a frightening process to engage with. But by the end of it, I think they feel something they've really enjoyed and also allows them to possibly lead their life in a more purposeful way. Danny, if it's not asking too much, why do you do what you do? I went through this process when I joined the men's program. I think for many years, especially in my early years in coaching, it was probably for the wrong reasons. It was sort of seeking possibly affirmation from others based on sort of outcome. So that was very dependent on outcome. And obviously, 
I'm not always in control of the outcome. So you're seeking affirmation through outcome. It can be a bit of a, a dangerous place to be. And I, and I would imagine a lot of people in a lot of domains lead their life that way. And I came to recognize largely through this process that was a bit of a challenge trap and there was a I needed to connect with something more, yeah, more meaningful. So going through that process and understanding, I really enjoy a sense of belonging to a group with like-minded individuals. So I really enjoy that sense of being in a team who are all striving over a similar set of values. And I also really enjoy that sort of strive for expertise, that strive for mastery over something. And those two things I would now describe as sort of my why, sort of that sense of belonging, particularly in, amongst people who have a similar set of values. And also, I really enjoy the sort of strive for expertise and enjoy trying to refine and do as well as I can in the area in which I work. Danny, we haven't met before today, but this idea of self-awareness comes up a lot in articles that are written about you and stories that you've contributed to. It actually seems to be very much at the centre of your leadership style. And it's an extension from there to say that the onus for action also sits with the athlete. So this self-awareness is something you want to encourage with them as well. But how do you start encouraging someone, one of your athletes, to be more self-aware? Yeah, I think there are a number of strategic stroke tactical things you can do as someone who is serving to lead in a program one of those is to model that behavior yourself so being open about the journey you've been on what you've learned about yourself and how that's helped you in the present so you're sort of modeling that behavior that self-reflection we do some you know more formal psychological tools psychometric type inventories with the athletes we currently use a tool called spotlight and that's always a really quite a powerful first step, especially for some of our younger athletes, sort of early 20s, when all of a sudden they, they sort of may start with a large degree of scepticism about sort of such tools. And when they go through the questionnaire and survey and then they get the feedback back, it, I think it's almost like a real light bulb moment of, wow, wow, I didn't realize people could understand that about myself through answering the survey. So that's a nice reference point for further conversations and then when I say the further conversation so there's the wide discovery process that I mentioned and then there's lots of elements of some peer-to-peer feedback so there's a sort of a raft of strategic stroke tactical things we do to sort of bring out that self-reflection bring out that self-awareness but I would really emphasize I think there's a need for people in head coach positions if you feel it's that seminal which I do to model that behavior you can't expect it of others unless you're willing to demonstrate it yourself. I could talk about modelling that behaviour for a minute because it was actually the modelling of change and self-awareness that was the turning point in your coaching career. And you've talked about it a lot uh, in press where you've said after the Beijing Olympics, the team went into the tournament ranked 11th. They finished sixth, which was good. You were coaching the women's team at this stage but it was the review afterwards where you were called grumpy, miserable, and unapproachable. <laughs> uh, those are my words. I think uh, there were a lot stronger words than that written, but they're probably the words we can use on a podcast. When I was reading about that, I thought you were actually lucky to have the type of relationship with the playing and the staff group where they would be willing to give you that feedback. I don't know whether it was direct, but at least they cared enough to give it to you. Many other coaches don't get that. They're not lucky enough to get that. 
So what kind of, what are the steps to, you would go through, you would advise someone to go through to build a culture where this kind of honesty is at the forefront? I think it's really important that I would say, I don't think that environment existed during the Beijing Olympic cycle and at the end of it. I received that feedback through a very significant end of Olympic cycle anonymous survey. So that's not disrespectful of people who fill out that survey. I think that is more an indictment of sort of probably that classic environment where you've got this head coach and people are too fearful to provide the feedback. So they store it all up until there comes a point in time where right you're asked by an independent body to give feedback and it's given anonymously. So it's no holds barred. It's all been bottled up for some period of time. I wouldn't want to give the wrong impression. I'd like to think now to a degree, to a larger degree, that we probably have a much better environment where people are more willing to be open and talk about that. Always, we can always do better in that regard. But after Beijing, it was more a case of an anonymous survey. I think today, this present day, I think, again, a bit like the Y discovery process, it's that modelling, wanting of feedback, seeking the feedback, thinking about the space and the time and how you set up the environment to seek others' views so they feel safe enough to offer their opinion, safe enough that they don't feel it will be judged and held against them. And you have to build that trust and that relationship over time and evidence that you are going to take note and make change, or if you're not, evidence that you've listened and heard and then give rationale for why that perhaps hasn't been changed. And I would say when people are giving you feedback that you perhaps it's difficult to hear, and I can definitely be quite bristly at times when I'm tired or fatigued and you're receiving stuff and you think, oh, you just don't understand, you don't be honest. You've got to hold that in and you've got to try and hold judgment and seek to understand their perspective, genuinely seek to understand their perspective. And I think over time, people will see that that is what you are doing. And over time, therefore, their ability to continue to give you the feedback that you wish or more honest and open feedback that you wish will, will materialise. But it takes time. So what did Beijing teach you? What was the lesson that you carried forward on that road to the gold medal? Basically, in 2008, and the three years leading up to that, I didn't have much self-insight and I simply didn't appreciate how I made people feel, uh, which wasn't great. I didn't have the self-insight. Danny, you're known for your experimentation as a coach of not being afraid to try things and fail and then just move on. In fact, it's become a hallmark of your team's. Is there an example you can share of where experimentation has delivered increased performance? In 2007, I started to float the idea with the women's program that statistically we had bumped between 12th and 6th in the world rankings for 20 plus years and something significant needed to change if we were going to medal in a home Olympics in 2012. So in 2007, I started to float the idea of centralising the program So asking athletes to relocate to a national training centre, a massive ask. And it took to 2009 before that idea started to get traction. That had been done in some other sports, but never in the British context with a team sport. And you can see it as experimentation. You can see it as a leap of faith. But the results speak for themselves. From that point onwards, we've consistently medalled or we had consistently medalled from 2009 right the way through to 
2017-18. So I like to think that was experimentation that worked well. And the other thing I think, especially in hockey, and I'm a little bit, this sounds a little bit blowing my own trumpet, so I'm a bit restant, but I feel I was a pretty early adopter of some of the emerging research around skill acquisition and what that meant for our training environment. And now with Twitter and how quickly things take a life of their own, the, the coaching landscape has shifted dramatically it's alive with sort of concepts that I've been sort of playing around with since around 2009 and what we're now 2021. I was a pretty early adopter of those. Intuitively, some of those things like constraints-led approach, repetition without repetition, intuitively I felt they were appropriate and I've sort of spent a lot of time trying to master my trade and craft in there. And it was definitely seen as experimentation and even to an extent it's still seen as a bit of experimentation today. There is still culturally ingrained a view of sort of block repetition and its role and its place in coaching in sports so they're two sort of particularly big aspects that i think i've experimented with many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Of course, the bronze in 12 and then the gold in 16. So that experimentation set you on the journey towards those great results. But I've also read where you've talked a lot about self-limiting beliefs and you actively engage your athletes on this very topic. What kind of questions or advice do you give them to deal with this voice they may have that's holding them back? This is an underreported or not emphasised enough aspect of the role of a coach, I think, The norm is that people have not been to these heady places. It's not normal for people to to have been let go to Olympics, let alone medal at Olympics. And so working against people's sort of limiting beliefs about what they're capable of is quite a key part of our our role. Now, some athletes come jam-packed with belief that they can do it. But my experience in the UK anyway is that's not the norm. The norm is full of self-doubt. First of all, normalizing that self-doubt and and almost talking to the fact that probably the majority of gold medalists Olympic level have all been in the same place and normalizing it. Exploring with the athletes where their self-limiting beliefs have come from and whether they're actually based in fact, and often they're not. And then often sort of looking at some of those athletes' role models and maybe perhaps exploring some of their lives and where they've come from and what they've worked with and against over time and how they've achieved through essentially a leap of faith. So sort of breaking down with the athlete, why they think they work the way they do, is it based in fact, looking at examples or almost 
any example in high performance sport where people have sort of had to struggle and often that struggles with their own self-doubts and therefore normalizing in the life of an athlete and that's the root of the conversations and where they tend to sit again we have good psychologists working with our program but often as a head coach you know, some of the most important conversations I have with athletes are around some of their self-limiting beliefs. I've read in multiple articles where you've talked about the importance of conflict resolution. And I was fascinated to read actually about the role that Katie Hayes, the psychologist you have, played in this area for you. And the question was, if other leaders wanted to bring a focus onto conflict resolution, what would you tell them to do first? There's significant conflict resolution then often bringing someone from the outside can be very helpful because they don't come with any preconceived notions or ideas. The people that you're working through the conflict with may perceive that they're a safer listener. They're not coming with their own judgment and preconceived ideas. So often it's how you set up the environment, who you set it up with, and when you do it. And then the person that's facilitating that conflict resolution, so it was Kate Hayes in this example with the women's program in 2014. The thing that Kate did was contract at the start of that process about how the process is going to run. So get agreement, what this is going to look like and feel like. So contract the process. And then I'm not sure whether Kate Hayes did this or not. I wasn't privy to some of those conflict. Well, I wasn't privy to that particular process. But when I've seen it done previously, it's almost finding out actually what is the common purpose here? You know, don't start with the differences. Start with what is the common purpose, which we can all agree on. And then the next thing is to seek to understand people's intentions behind people's behaviours. Often the conflict tends to be a reflection of what the behaviours were, people's assumptions about those intentions. So trying to seek some understanding around those intentions and understand the assumptions and Often the case is once people understand some of the intentions behind some of those behaviours and we deconstruct some of the assumptions that have previously sat there, then you're in a good place to sort of move forwards. Often it's just assumptions that provide the conflict and things that aren't going said is where the simmering conflict can lay. Great answer. Thank you, Danny. Could I switch gears a little bit actually and ask you about Thinking Thursday? and the training routine that you put in place behind this? I think even the phrase, as I've mentioned, is an alliteration, so it's sticky. It's something that's memorable, and I think as coaches, that's a really nice concept to think about. Essentially, you're trying to create a learning environment where the important learning sticks, and Thinking Thursdays themselves are sort of born out of that concept. We wanted to create an environment where what we were doing in the practice environment would transfer to the Olympic environment. So in the fifth and sixth, seventh and eighth game of Olympics, the quarterfinal, semifinal, medal match of the Olympics, the very hard lessons that we were trying to learn in our environment would transfer in the moment to really major matches under huge fatigue, under sort of judgment, consequence and expectation, they would transfer into that environment. So often coaches will talk about specificity in the environment. So ensuring that the environment sort of replicates is, is representative of the environment you're going to go and compete in. Because if it doesn't have that representativeness, not adapting people to the environment that they're going to go and compete in. So I've often felt that the bit that's been missing is the creation of emotion within training. So we can recreate some of the density of decisions, the speed of decisions, the physical speed, the physiological fatigue, 
that's bread and butter for coaches. They can do that pretty easily. It's doing that then in a way that also creates emotional response. And what you're then seeking is the athlete's ability to regulate their emotional response and almost finding their optimum and their ability to regulate themselves to fulfill the tasks, grip themselves, grip other people around them, grip the task and go about problem solving. We will often create pressure in the environment through things like judgment, consequence and expectation. We will often dislocate people's expectations and that's a direct rip-off of Sir Clive Woodward's sort of dislocation of expectations. So you know, athletes turn up expecting one thing, that's operating, then all of a sudden you change the goalposts, you make it a different set of tasks or different set of rules or the way that umpire interpretation is happening changes. And you are going to create some emotional upset there. And what you're looking for is your athlete's ability to yeah, to grip themselves, self-regulate and stay on task. There's also some long-term strategic aims around leadership and followership. So again, you can deliberately design the mini tournaments we had on a Thinking Thursday to have leadership and followership challenges built into them. Uh, an example of that, at the end of some of the men's training sessions on a Thursday, we asked those in followership positions to feed back to the leaders and the leaders to feed back to the followers. So you have a in-the-moment debrief around the qualities of leadership that were used, same for followership. And done over months and years, you are building those set of skills that are going to be required in the Olympic environment. So that's a whistle-stop tour to Thinking Thursdays. Well, the name sounds a lot simpler than the actual application. (laughs) Apologies if that was a bit wordy. It wasn't wordy at all. I was wondering how I can apply it to my own team. But I think this whole idea of emotional regulation when you are faced with a heightened stimulus around you is actually quite a powerful one and it transfers into all elements of life. Actually, I maybe would build on that by saying, I believe you have two daughters. And I guess one day they're going to come to you from, for some advice or maybe they'll stop coming to you advice for a while, <laughs> but they'll definitely come back at some point. In the distant future, when they do ask you for some leadership advice, what would be the top things you would tell them? I think you've got to be able to lead yourself before you can lead others. That sounds easy, but, but it's really not, especially in pressure environments. So your ability to lead yourself is going to be fundamental to your ability to lead others. And in order to do that, again, you've got to understand yourself first. Again, that sounds easy, but I'm not sure how many people really do understand themselves. And they're, they're the two probably, well, hopefully they sound pretty sage and wise, but they're the two bits that I would probably pass on to my, uh, to my daughters. And if they wanted to get into the ins and outs of that, I'm sure I could sort of bring some examples from their current lives to sort of bring that to life. Danny, I'd like to just ask one final question if I could. And before I'd ask it, I'd like to just read back a quote I have from you, actually. And you say, when we think about the role that we do, do we give enough thought to the fact that we create moments that live with people in a good way and done right, it pays dividends when it needs to? So I wanted to finish by asking you, what is the legacy that you would like to leave as a coach? I think the thing that I'm proud about with many of the Olympians that sort of went through London 2012 and 2016 is I think they have a heavy sense of understanding of who they are, a real sense of their accountability to one another and how they supported each other through what was an incredible 8-12 year journey and I think the skills and life experiences they learned on the way 
has set them up for life. And some of that was intentional and some of that has been very lucky circumstance on my part. So if I were to summarise, I think, equipping people with skills that move beyond just playing hockey, sort of skills, life experiences that will set them up for life. Thanks, Danny. It's been great chatting to you today and I wish you all the best for the road ahead. You're really welcome. Thanks for your time, Paul. I really appreciate being asked. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Danny Kerry. Some of the other key highlights for me were how it was the innovation around centralizing the team's training center and skill acquisition that helped lift the team from a world ranking outside the top 10 to where they started to consistently medal, using purpose as the basis to mine for and resolve conflict and how great coaches have the courage of their own convictions and are curious about how to do things better and wanting to leave a legacy of having helped people understand who they are and in turn build their sense of accountability to one another. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just as the same nickname as others from Germany who said... This is not about sports. This is about leadership. Fantastic insights, thoughtful questions, and deep emotional interviews. And Jonathan P. from Australia, who said, It's great to listen to a series of those that really craft great public success and hear their strategies and tips. Something really unique and special in the podcasting world. It's the interaction with people around the world like this who listen to the show, give Paul and I great energy. All the details on how to connect with us and other people who are interested in the leadership insights from great sports coaches are in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.